The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into the writings of Stephen King. What started as two friends rereading The Dark Tower has turned into an exploration of Stephen King's writing writ large. This episode, we talk about Act One of The Stand. From the President's Speech, delivered at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard, not seen in many areas. A great nation such as this must do. We cannot afford to jump at shadows like small children in a dark room. But neither can we afford to take this serious outbreak of influenza lightly. My fellow Americans, I urge you to stay at home. If you feel ill, stay in bed, take aspirin, and drink plenty of clear liquids. Be confident that you will feel better in a week at most. Let me repeat what I said at the beginning of my talk to you this evening. There is no truth, no truth, to the rumor that this strain of flu is fatal. In the greatest majority of cases, the persons afflicted can expect to be up and around and feeling fine within a week. Further, (coughs) further, there has been a vicious rumor promulgated by certain radical anti-establishment groups that this strain of influenza has been somehow bred by this government for some possible military use. Fellow Americans, this is a flat-out falsehood, and I want to brand it as such right here and now. This country signed the revised Geneva Accords on poison gas, nerve gas, and germ warfare in good conscience and in good faith. We have not now nor have we ever <laughs> have we ever been a party to the clandestine manufacture of substances outlawed by the Geneva Convention. This is a moderately serious outbreak of influenza, no more and no less. We have reports tonight of outbreaks in a score of other countries, including Russia and Red China. And therefore... <laughs> We ask you to remain calm and secure in the knowledge that late this week or early next, a flu vaccine will be available for those not already on the mend. National Guardsmen have been called out in some areas to protect the populace against hooligans, vandals, and scaremongers. But there is absolutely no truth to the rumors that these some cities have been occupied by regular army forces or that the news has been managed. My fellow Americans, this is a flat-out falsehood, and I want to brand it as such right here. Graffito written on the front of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta in red spray paint. Dear Jesus, I will see you soon. Your friend, America. P.S. I hope you still have some vaccines by the end of the week. Fellow travelers on the path of the beam. What is up? Wheel of Ka has returned. Uh, The third time in like a month and a half. I, I must say, I did not think we'd be back recording so quickly. In fact, I planned on us reading most of this book, The Stand. As you all know, you're following us on Twitter. You heard that amazing introduction done by Steve. Just (laughs) absolutely amazing introduction. We are talking the Stephen King, the stand. We hit this inflection point 
where we got exactly 230 pages into our version of the stand. I know there's a lot out there. It's the end of chapter, was it 26? 26. So we read through app, through chapter, pardon me, 26. I got there a little bit before you, and oh, I yeah. paused to wait because I'm like, one, the end of chapter 26 kind of rocked me to my core, so I wanted to take a few days away from it. I mean, it's intense. And then you caught up, and then we were talking about it, and we realized we wanted to talk about our first impressions of The Stand. Yeah. Neither of us have read it before. I had started the audiobook years ago, but just because of life, I never continued with it. I'd never got this far into it. I was very interested in The Stand, obviously, as a Stephen King fan. And these first 230 pages made me pause and think, I kind of want to talk about what we expected the stand to be from reputation. Yeah. What we are getting in the first, we call it the first act. It's almost a third of the book, but not quite. Yeah. And because this book is 1,200 pages long. And we have small font. And a small font, (laughs) yes. It's 1,200 pages of small font. But I was floored by the first 230 pages. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the beginning, the intro of The Stand, I think, if you will, our impressions of it. We have not read beyond this. No. So we don't really know where The Stand is going. So we're going to talk about just kind of like our, we dipped our toes into this tome and we're trying to see like, what did it really feel like? It's funny. In a weird way, it almost feels like we're making a giant assumption, but it feels right. Like I feel like, especially at the end of that passage, which is the last, um, the last few paragraphs of chapter 26, when America dies, um, it, it felt like, oh, this book is much different than what I thought it was going to be. You know? And that's, it, but it, but it, it definitely feels a little odd to be talking about a book this early on. But then again, with, you know, the COVID pandemic continuing, you know, I, I think it makes sense. Yeah, and in that vein, if you have access to the vaccine, get it. Please. The Delta variant is raging through the country. Wear a mask. I'm not a health professional, so you're not listening to no. the Wheel of Cough for that, but please put a mask on, I mean, even if I'm, you're vaccinated. I'm I'm attending a funeral this Sunday for a dear friend whose parent passed because of COVID, because they were they were unvaccinated. So please, in, in all seriousness, politics aside, please get the vaccine. It's the it's the super flu. It's Captain, it it's Captain Trips. Captain Trips is here. It's called Captain the Delta Trips. Barrett. Yeah. Captain Trips. Before we get too deep into it, man, just tell me, how you feeling, brother? Uh, this is my favorite question every time. I feel great. I feel tired today, again. Um, new career, new changes. Baby, we're halfway through. Rebecca's halfway through, I should say. You're- I always feel so strange with the we are pregnant thing because I am not Clearly. And I just feel like it takes away. But you know what? Everyone's told me to. You know what? Totally off topic. But I 100% agree. When people said like, oh, you and Laurel are pregnant. And I'm like. No, we are not. I don't have a uterus. Yeah. (laughs) And and also like, please, please, all credit needs to go to my wife right now. Exactly. It Um, felt weird to lump me into that. I'm like, my body's not changing. (laughs) At all. You know, like I'm not growing a soul for the universe. one job. No. So. So to get back to how I feel, I feel great. I'm I, to be completely honest, I am really, really excited, and and I feel uh, I feel fortunate that we have been able to do so many episodes recently. Truthfully, I I have so much joy 
making these episodes and talking about Stephen King specifically with you. And I feel very privileged to be back not two weeks after we did The Mist. So to be honest with you, it kind of feels like Christmas. I feel a little spoiled right now that I'm back in front of this microphone. And I'm really excited to talk to the stand. I'm a little intimidated. Uh, this book holds a lot of weight uh, in a lot of people's minds. And both you know? literally because it's big as all hell. Yeah. I, I'm going to do one up there on that and what you're saying. I not only love talking Stephen King with you, I also love talking Stephen King with all of the Wheelaka, Dark Tower <sighs> aficionados, I am blown constant away. readers on the, on the Twitter, man. Especially this week. I, I really am blown away at how responsive everyone's been, at how engaged everyone's been. I, I kind of cheekily put up, you know, that, that post about like, well, I just wanted to pose the question. A lot of people on Twitter are talking about, you know, the Amazon series of the dark tower that was supposed to be made. And that apparently got canned. It got canned. And we found out from one of our listeners that there, there have been some podcast hosts who have gotten access to that through the showrunner who we tweeted uh, to try to get access. So here, I'm, I'm going to be very selfish right now. I'm going to ask all of our followers and listeners, please, fellow travelers, do me, Steve, a personal favor. Go on Twitter and f somehow request that they allow Derek and I to have access to that pilot <laughs> so that we can watch it and talk about it under the guise of the Wheel of Ka. Please, you're so responsive. They're so dedicated. I've never felt like... I've been an artist for a long time. I've been an actor and a musician for a long time. And I've done some cool shit, and I've done some really not so cool shit. And this independent group of podcasters and podcast fans blows me away at how genuine, how empathetic people are, how engaged they are, how much they love to argue with us. I love that. And it's it's always, always in a spirit of, of friendly debate, too. Yes. That's what I love about the Dark Tower Twitter community, which we're on Twitter at the Wheel of Ka, at the Midnight Myth. Um, I, my Twitter handle's somewhere in there. I don't remember it. It's like Derek Jones 198, something like that. that I sounds, tag that you close. every day. Or was it Derek about. C. Jones? Who I don't know. Knows? It's my name. If you find the Wheel of Ka, you'll find yeah, me. Yeah, just come to the Wheel of Ka. Yeah, and then, then you can find me. <laughs> but it, it's always, even when it gets vociferous and even when it gets contentious. Hold on. What? Vociferous. Explain. Even when it gets um, uh, with a lot of gusto and oh, okay, enthusiasm. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And so we vociferously debated the merits I of that. the Dark Tower Amazon Prime series that got canned. Another quick aside. Um, I constantly, when reading Stephen King, I've never in my life had to look up more words than when I've read Stephen King, which is amazing. I've expanded my vocabulary at 34. It's incredible. 100%. But I'll tell you what, Alexa, 100%. I think Alexa is sick and tired of me asking every morning for like four definitions. So we're totally way off topic. It's fine. Already, it's but, fine. Isn't this what podcasts do after like three years? Like most of the episode is just them bullshitting at first. It we're happens. not going to do that. I promise. It, it definitely happens. I'm also ridiculously tired. My, my eight-month son is having some sleep regression. Ugh. So I've been up more or less since 2.30 in the morning, and it's now almost 8.30 in the evening. Ugh. So I may not be at my sharpest. All right, so we're going to start kind of standardly here now that we've gotten all the intros. I'm going to read the back of the stand. I'll do kind of a very quick recap of where we're at in the book to catch everyone up. 
And um, then we're going to just talk about it. I think the idea, we're going to talk about these characters that we've met and our predictions of, well, first we're going to start with what we thought the book was versus what we think it is. Then we're going to talk about the characters. Stephen King's apocalyptic vision of a world blasted by plague and tangled in an elemental struggle between good and evil remains as riveting and eerily plausible as when it was first published. A patient escapes from a biological testing facility, unknowingly carrying a deadly weapon, a mutated strand of super flu that will wipe out 99% of the world's population within a few weeks. Those who remain are scared, bewildered, and in need of a leader. To emerge, Mother Abigail, the benevolent 108-year-old woman who urges them to build a peaceful community in Boulder, Colorado, and Randall Flagg, the nefarious dark man who delights in chaos and violence. As the dark man and the peaceful woman gather power, the survivals will have to choose between them and ultimately decide the fate of all humanity. I probably should have read the back before reading this book. <laughs> that was my first time ever reading it. Was that the, your first time you reading it? No, I definitely read it before. I did not read the back. That was my first time. And I'm like, huh, we haven't even met whoever this Mother Abigail character is. Oh, yeah. Is. No, no. We're nowhere near that. So this book starts with a patient escaping. Yeah. That patient ends up spreading super flu. We have a few key characters that we've met in different areas. There's Nick, who's mute and deaf, and he is in Arkansas. There is Larry Underwood, who gets probably the most ink time, who's a one-hit wonder musician traveling home to kind of detox from his drug binge, from his music business. Then there's also probably the second character gets the most ink time. I would say Franny, a young girl who is pregnant with a man that she realizes that she doesn't love in a small New England beach community. Then we have Stu, a Texan, who's one of the first people to encounter the disease post-patient zero, who's in a medical testing facility, who they are, for some reason is not getting sick when everyone else is. Then we have Lloyd, who went on a crime spee with his buddy Poke, who ends up murdering a bunch of people and is arrested awaiting trial for death row. And lastly, we meet this mysterious stranger named Randall Flagg, who seems to have magic powers. Where this book really kind of, the, the first 230 pages, it's juxtaposed against the military who are trying desperately to A, contain the disease, B, study those who have had the disease, um, and by studying them, hopefully reverse engineer a cure, and then lastly, suppress all news of the disease. Because since the military created it, they made the decision to protect the military and its reputation at all costs. As the news of the disease can no longer be contained, as the military gets more draconian in its methods to stop the spread of information, stop the spread of the disease, America devolves into a full-on military dictatorship right on the verge of the super flu, presumably killing everybody. And we get the sense that our main characters, who I've introduced very briefly, have some level, if not complete, immunity to it. And that's where we're at. Yep. It's so good. So hit me up. Where does this book stand in relation to Stephen King's career? When did he write it? Yes. I know there's some history here. Yes. So uh, again, according to Wikipedia, I, I feel like I don't need to quote them, but I'm going to. Whatever. Okay. The Stand is a post-apocalyptic dark fantasy novel written by Stephen King, first published in 1978 by Doubleday. 
the plot centers on a pandemic of a weaponized strain of influenza that kills almost the entire world's population. Uh, skipping ahead, King apparently sought to create an epic in the spirit of the Lord of the Rings uh, that was set in contemporary America. Uh, he started writing The Stand in February of 1975, and he says that the book was difficult for him to write because of the large number of characters and storylines. So it's a lot that he had to manage. Uh, and again, in 1990, The Stand was reprinted as the complete and uncut edition, which is the one that you and I are currently reading. He restored over 400 pages from texts that were initially reduced from the original manuscript, revised the order of the chapters, shifted the novel's setting from 1980 to 10 years forward, and accordingly corrected a number of cultural references. We'll get to that, because I disagree with that statement. Um, the complete and uncut edition of The Stand is Stephen King's longest standalone work at 1,152 pages, surpassing his 1,138-page novel, It. I believe that. The book has sold 4.5 million copies, it's considered to be one of his best books of all time. It's been listed in, uh, it's been included in list of the best books of all time by Rolling Stone, Time, Modern Library, blah, 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 blah. It's great. You know, apparently Marvel Comics uh, did a graphic novel as well. I did not know that. I did not. And I'm going to check that out. You know, it's interesting. I was perusing through YouTube because anytime Stephen King's doing a public appearance, I, I like to, to see it. Most of them end up on YouTube. So he was promoting his recent book on one of the night shows. I want to say Colbert. could have been Fallon. could have been Seth Meyers. I don't know which one. Either one of the white guys. And he, he went on, and they were just talking, and they said, you know, what are some of your favorite books? And he mentioned his top five favorite books. The Stand is one of them. Interestingly enough, I was doing some digging to some previous Stephen King, and he was giving a lecture, and someone filmed it. It made its way to YouTube. I don't remember the exact video. He goes, you know, it's crazy. Everybody keeps asking me about The Stand as if like The Stand is like the greatest book I've read, I've ever written, pardon me, but I don't think it is. So I've heard him say both he doesn't think it's his greatest and it's in one of his top five. I think without a doubt, The Stand has a legacy that looms large. Yeah. I and think, I think, I also think that that probably weighed on him a lot. I mean, the fact that he found it difficult to write because it is... You know, I could see where some chapters are reordered even early on through the first 26. There are a lot of people to keep track of. There are. Even even though 99% of the population has gone, there's a lot of people to keep track of. I mean, we sat down here. Feels ready, ready to record, exactly. <laughs> and we were like, what's the guy that hung around with Poke? Oh, yeah, right. that's right. His name's Lloyd. And <laughs> I kept telling you, it's Poke. The, the Poker Eyes guy's Poke. I was like, you no, like, Poke no, died. Dude, it's Poke's dead. Yeah. You had to look at me one point in time. Like, Poke died. I'm talking about... I was like, oh, right, right, yeah, right. Lloyd. <laughs> I think there is uh, there is something, at least about, we haven't read the whole book. So talking purely, and I think the first 26 chapters feels like the introduction to me. And the end of it with America ending feels like we've turned a page in the story. And very much like when I read it, like when I've read some of my favorite Dark Tower books, I get the sensation with reading Stephen King where I feel like the words come off the page and they form the image. Like I'm walking into the matrix. Like if you've seen the matrix mm -hmm. and you go through all of the code oh, and yeah. then you walk into the world. 
You've even said, you've mentioned to me before that it's like the words are jumping off the page and wrapping around your mind. They really are. I agree with that. It's the only author I've ever had that experience with. And I read the first 230 pages probably in a few days. It's funny. You flew through it. It ended up taking me a lot longer. And that's normally the opposite way around. Especially, I've got the freaking baby. I know, seriously. You know, so I got the baby. Don't worry, I'll be there soon. You will be. (laughs) And I just adored the first 230 pages. I do want to mention one thing. I put this on Twitter, and it got got a little contentious. I actually had a Stephen King troll come out of the woodwork that I had to ban or block. Yeah, that's a shame. Oh, dude. Hey, man. I loved it. (laughs) I know you did. I was like, oh, come on. You know, I loved it. But um, I put out there that a lot of the casual racism in domestic violence was a little offsetting to me. One friend is pregnant and her boyfriend just slaps her when mm-hmm. they're arguing about what to do with the baby. Mm-hmm. Two, Fran's father, so Fran's mother slaps Fran, she, her pregnant daughter, yep. when she's saying she wants to keep the baby. And then Fran's father comes in and smacks her. And the way it's written that Fran's father was somehow morally correct for hitting his wife. Right. It even says, and I will paraphrase that I should have done this 10 years ago. Yeah. It would have hurt us both less yeah. as if hitting his wife is also like it, that just felt so weird to me. Then, especially in Larry's story, talking about the music that he's making, how many people call his music, some form of the N word kind of music. I won't even repeat it. You know, everyone knows what that means. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, these are our good guys. Stephen, well, Stephen King has had racist and sexist and domestic oh, violence, yeah. but they're usually not coming from people that I'm like, are supposed to be the good guys. Well, and I almost, it almost makes me wonder, you know, I, I mean, again, it was written in the 70s. Uh, at the time, Stephen King imbibed in quite a bit of things at that point in time. That does not excuse <laughs> how, the way things were written. And I, you know, I felt the same way. I mean, I read it and was like, man, that quite a lot of it, quite a lot of domestic violence, quite a lot of racism right off the bat. Um, and, and you're right from our protagonists, which is, I think what's kind of the most upsetting, the most off putting is that like, well, how, how am I supposed to root for any of these people moving forward? If they're all shit, they're all shit people. Now, again, you know, this book takes place all across America in a time where America was trying to find its identity. We're coming out of the Nixon years and, you know, moving into the Reagan years. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't oh, know. Ho, ho, ho. You are totally forgetting. No, uh, no, I'm not forgetting. Jimmy Carter. Well, I'm skipping. <laughs> Listen, I'm skipping Jimmy Carter because I, I'm, I'm not disrespecting Jimmy Carter. I know he was in between there, but like. And then there's Vincent Nixon's vice president, who, if I weren't so tired, I know his name. <sighs> who pardoned him, and that yeah. was a huge, huge Ed, to-do. Listen, this was, the this was my guy. segment. Yeah, what I'm are you sorry. doing? <laughs> I'm the actor over here. I don't, I don't care. I'm talking about the two giant changes in American politics and, and in our social structure, right? And so, I don't know. I, it, it definitely made me feel a little odd, although at the same time, you know... Gerald Ford was Nixon's VP. I had to look it oh, up. Oh, forgettable. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I just love how like how ch- <laughs> forgettable cavalier baby it doesn't matter. Anyway, I totally but, threw us no, off. No, no, it's okay. But 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 my point being that like 
I and a lot of our responses on Twitter were like, you know, it was the seventies. You know, it was the time when it was written. Look, we get that, right? Like, can, we're, but, but can I say this? This is one of the things that really kind of messed me up. I knew that the book was old, but I didn't know exactly when it was written. Right. So I'm imagining this as the 90s. Well, and that's the problem, right? Because, because and, and that's the, that's no, our the piece. Bo- our book is set in the 90s. In the 90s. And, and what's wrong about that for me is that in this Wikipedia page, in the fact that he updated it and went through and, you know, changed cultural references, I, I'm sorry, I call bullshit on that. They call, you know, they call... Um, Larry's. Larry's music, N-word bebop. Bebop? Bebop? We're talking about a, we're talking about a, a form of music that was created by black population in the 70s. Like, you didn't go back. In the 90s, gangster rap is about to become gigantic. 70s underground rap. The 80s in the rap scene when it blew up. Like, come on. Like, if we're going to go through, and this is the problem. The only problem with Stephen King is that he's a nice, privileged white man in America. It's just the truth. And so when you go back as a white man and you revise those things, there are going to there are going to be cultural references and things that he is going to miss. And for me, it doesn't make any sense at all to update this in the 90s just because he re-released it. It makes no sense other than, for me, I, I hate to say this, I don't like talking shit on King, but to me, it feels like a marketing scheme. All right, I'm going to re-release the book the way that I wanted it. It reminds me of Zack Snyder. I'm going to re-release the book the way I wanted it. Did you just compare Stephen King no, to Zack Snyder? No, I, I, I compared their choices. Okay, I'm going to re-release this book the way I want. I'm going to add 400. I'm going to add a novel to my novel. And then I'm going to only update certain references. I don't know. To me, it's a little lazy and I don't think it had to happen to be effective. I, 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 and I want to say, I think domestic violence and casual racism, racism in all forms and all guises was just as wrong in the seventies as, as it, it is, is now in the nineties as it is in the 2020s. And I'm not denying that that's the world that we lived in. Well, let me finish my point. Sorry. So it would have been jarring and 2021 to read that in the seventies and still have that when you add in some of the things that just don't feel 1990s to begin with, you start thinking like, you know, in the 1990s, you would think we were a little bit better than we were in the seventies, but these characters are not. And I know that the impulse is to defend King and say it was written in the seventies. I do think you can create complicated, interesting characters that are morally ambiguous that you're not sure if you like or not, and they don't have to do domestic violence, and they don't have to do racism. And I think King can do that. He does do that, and has done that with several interesting, complicated protagonists. The easiest one that I can name off the top of my head is Roland Deschain, who's morally ambiguous, complicated. You don't know how you feel about him, but you are sucked into his journey and you got to go on it. And it's one that hopefully gives some redemption to someone who starts terrible. You know, seeing Larry talk with his mother about, you know, how they don't like black music. Oh, and Larry's his son, mother's the worst. And his son doing black music. Ugh. was just like, uh, okay, I get it. They're not supposed to be good people, but like, is this the only way? And I guess... 
I guess this is this is a way. This is a way to make them good people. But if it wasn't, if there wasn't so much of it, mm-hmm. I will say once I got a little deeper into it and I met Nick and I got to know Stu more, I felt like there was a counterbalance. I'm like, okay, Nick and Stu seem like good people. The other thing is it could be that King is showing us the current America at the time and what's going to happen after 99% of the population dies. So yeah. I don't know. It could be that I'm, I'm sure with King, there's a reason for it other than it just being a white man of the times. But I, I'm not certain because we haven't read that far. I think that's a fair point. And I'm no way saying I'm not going to go on this journey. I'm going on this journey, which is an interesting thing. One of the scenes I just kind of want to pick apart a little bit is with Lloyd, who is in jail, and he meets his public defender. And his public defender, unlike most public defenders, actually wants to try to help out this guy, Lloyd, a little bit and explains to him how he's in the state of Arizona and the fast-track execution laws that it's considered cruel and inhumane to leave people on death row so Arizona and other states are pushing ex- executions for people that unanimously need the death penalty by waiving their rights to appeal. And I think about that scene and I think about what happens in America and how America becomes a military, di- democ- a military dictatorship, pardon me, and how it falls so quickly. How the fact that America was creating this biological weapon to begin with. And I think there's an element of saying some of the problems are deeply baked in. You know, this was a society that is on the precipice of fall for several reasons, yet, at least in this fictional America, and this biological disease was just the last push. Because if we can consider it, you know, if we're trying to fight inhumane punishment by fast-tracking executions, that is the definition of inhumane punishment. Right. There's no more authority in the law whatsoever. And what do we see when the virus gets out of hand? What do we see when the news gets out of hand? Newscasters are gunned down. The army fractures. They kill a bunch of college kids. There's executions happening everywhere. It becomes a brutal military dictatorship. It becomes code word Rome falls. Yeah. And it becomes the president of the United States, you know, getting on television and lying to the entire country. I don't know about you, but when you read that, and I was really visualizing it here when we were recording, I heard Nixon. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Richard Nixon. It seems like what For Nick, sure. Nixon would do, just blatantly lie, blame it on, you know. And it, for, for lack of a you know a better term, it also reminds me of Trump. It's that same mentality. Lie through your teeth. Lie, lie, lie until it's true. The difference is, at least that speech that this fictional president reads from the bunker. Was coherent? Yeah, had sentences that <laughs> would get pr- proper grammar, you know? <laughs> Trump's not really known for proper grammar and good sentences, you know? He's just known for saying words. <laughs> and awful hair. So, not to get super political, but we kind of did. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about our characters. Let's let's do. Who do you want to start with? Let's do a character round robin. Why don't you pick? Why don't you pick the first character? Oh, we got to start with Nick. 
We're going to start with I, Nick. We got to start with Nick. Well, then you lead it. Kick off. So Nick Andros. So we have a a a person with a disability. Uh, disabilities. He uh, is unable to speak and unable to hear. And however, it absolutely does not um, inhibit him socially whatsoever. He's incredibly smart, super sharp. To me, right now, he is the most endearing character. He's the most empathetic character. He is the person who feels the most human of everyone to me right now. I feel like I can really connect to Nick. Um, and, you know, he's... It, his story is just so interesting to me. He decides, well, I'm going to help the sheriff out because he's helped me. I'm going to look over. I'm going to look over these prisoners. And he takes care of them in a weird way. I'm going to get you food and make sure you're fed. Make sure that the routine is held. Um, cares for the sheriff's wife after the sheriff dies. And really just, just finds himself. I mean, both of his parents are dead. They died by the time he was 17. He's been on his own. Um, I couldn't imagine what that would be like to have to be a person with a disability and be alone in that world. Although Nick doesn't seem to mind. And a kid. And a, a kid. A total kid. Yeah. Nick is my favorite character so far. So far, me too. And I will say I was getting a little Larry fatigued because there's a lot of Larry in the first yeah. 230 yeah, pages. Sure. And when we talk about Larry, I'll tell you more why. Sure. What I liked about Nick so much is to me, he represented stoicism. Mm. and ancient stoicism has a lot of different elements to it, but it's fundamentally about duty, making sure that you live to certain virtues, and it's about not being too wrapped up in suffering, understanding that suffering is a part of who you are. It's a part of what it means to be alive. You will suffer. The best thing you can do in this suffering is not alleviate it, because that's impossible. To live is to suffer. It's to live as honorably and nobly amidst that suffering and make sure you uphold the duty to others around you. Specific pieces of evidence. The, the prisoners that he's taken care of beat him mercilessly. Yeah. He has no connection whatsoever to the wife of the, of the, the sheriff. She passes away and he upholds her requests for burial and does exactly what she wants he has a sense of duty and obligation to those around him despite his suffering, despite the fact that he suffers. He suffers from his inability to communicate with everyone else. He suffers in his inability to have had a, a healthy childhood with loving parents. And he suffers in the respect that he's watching the first people in his vagabond day-to-day -day existence on the road who have showed any interest or care to him. One of my favorite things about that, which is so freaking stoic, is he sits down and he writes his life story. And he doesn't try to make it... This After the sheriff tells him so. Yes, because that's the duty to the sheriff. Yeah. The sheriff needs to. Yeah. And he thinks about it, how cosmically ridiculous it is that he's in, in this position, but what the hell? Life is pain, so let me write out what happened. You know, it's funny. Even though he's a kid, he is incredibly mature, wise beyond his age. And I do think that that comes from losing your parents, um, you know? And think, think about this. His, the person who taught him 
how to read lips and, and everything. That mentor that found him in the orphanage yeah. beat him. Yeah. And what does he say? You know what? That was a really kind man. Reminds, reminds me a lot of Court. Yeah. And he says, that great call out. Yeah. And his, he has love and affection, even though this person didn't have love and affection, but it was like, you know what? You did your duty. You helped me learn. And I'm going to have an affection and caring for you, even though your, your system of education, your system of punishment was brutal and cruel. It fundamentally made me stronger and helped me. Hence, I have to, I have, to have respect for you. You know, it's interesting. Nick, Nick sort of reminded me a little of Roland. In that, in that stoicism, in his dedication, and, and, and that, that relationship with him and his mentor, it did remind me of Court, because he does abuse him. But at the same time, he does care for him emotionally. But what he's teaching Nick is like, look, life is fucking unfair. And you already know this from a physical standpoint, but and from an emotional standpoint, losing your parents at such a young age, and being responsible for the rest of your life by yourself. You know, and in the 1970s when this was originally written, that that's, I mean, I couldn't even imagine. Let me give you a quick quote from Marcus Aurelius, the famous Roman emperor who, who was also huge into Stoic philosophy. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you've seen a very excellent portrayal of him. And I think this sums up the, the idea of Stoicism perfectly. Marcus Aurelius wrote these things. These were his personal meditations about Stoic philosophy and being an emperor. Now, as a Roman emperor, he was worshipped as a god, and he had someone walking behind him, whispering in his ear, remember thou art mortal. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, because he was just like, you can't take this emperor thing too seriously. Wow. I'm mortal. Even though people were worshipping him as a god, he wanted to be reminded that he was mortal. Wow. And this, I think, this quote also really kind of resonates a little bit with me. It's very short about Nick's journey and a lot of what these characters are going. This his destiny hath brought upon him. And that's it. His destiny in, in Stoicism, you don't have a lot of control in that philosophical idea. You don't have a lot of freedom. All that you can do in the way Gandalf says this to Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, you only get to choose what you can do with the time that is given. And Nick makes some choices that I really admire. He could be cruel to the prisoners, but he does his best to be kind and do right by them. He could be cruel to these town people that he knows nothing. He could be cruel to the sheriff's wives, but yet he chooses kindness. People often think that stoicism means lack of emotion, but the stoic philosophers are quite the opposite. They feel tremendously, but they advocate for a sense of control over what you can control. And I really like that Nick has this ancient Roman stoicism to him. You were good to me. I'll be good to you. And I'll do everything I can to help you. My lot in life has been terrible. Mm. I'm going to make the best of it. And, right. I, and I won't complain. Two things. Number one, I'm glad another day has gone by where we got or we didn't miss a Roman reference. A Roman history reference, truly. Number two, you know, I didn't know that about Stoicism. I was absolutely one of those people that thought it was just emotionless and like, you know, what it, I thought a Stoic. I mean, you, you it I, does, I it, did not know any of that. It does mean that colloquially, right? Like, so like, sure. But in terms of the Roman Stoic philosophy, 
that was really big in the era and time. It was a, it was originally Greek, but um, Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic philosopher. All yeah. philosophies originally Greek in the Western world, and to some part, but <laughs> it, it took really big hold in in ancient Rome. And Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. Yeah. He's one of the great Stoic writers whose writings has survived. Mm -hmm. His meditations that he wrote. They're beautiful, by the way. Some are a little weird, but they're mostly beautiful. He wrote never to be published. They were for him. These oh. are his personal Stoic meditations about what it means to be an emperor. And luckily they have survived. Stoics are about really truly feel feeling and really connecting emotion. And Nick is one of the characters that, at least in these first pages, this is a Stephen King book, I assume he's going to be oh, torn to shreds. Sure, sure. We're going to get the gamut. He feels deep emotions yeah. when he sees the doctor of the Arkansas town and he feels for him and just wants to know if there's anything that he can do for him. He feels for these prisoners, even though they attacked and abused him. Well, and also to point out, Nick is one of the folks who has been around those who have been infected and he has not. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully more to come. I think there's a common theme between the people that we will, the characters we'll be talking about tonight, which are most likely survivors of, of, of the this. end of the world. Exactly. I, and I assume so. Let's, uh, who do you want to do next? Um, let's get Larry out of the way. Cause you and I both, you know, I was like, ah, come on, Larry can't be so bad. And then I read more of his story and I was like, I, there's just so much of this in the world. Like who cares? You know what I mean? Can I tell you why I hate Larry? Please. Well, at least up to page 230. Man, if I was in my young 20s and had a hit, I'd be Larry. Oh, me too. And that's why I hate him. I see, me too. I see, other than the racism. Yeah, you're not wrong. I see so much. Of, I mean, I hate, to, I hate to say this, but if I was his age, it might have even been the racism back then. If I'm being completely real about me and like where I grew up. Can I ask you to... Flesh that out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely can. I know, I know. And what, what I mean by that is I grew up in an area outside of Philadelphia that was predominantly white. And I grew up, not that I grew up a racist. I didn't grow up in with a racist family. However, I did have privileged racist views, unfortunately. I mean, I lived in a, in a town that was like 90% white. And I remember having a conversation with a friend in college, a, a black friend of mine who is one of my closest friends, where I had said to him, we were talking about police brutality. And I, I, was not, I was 18 years old, 19 years old, and I said, come on, you can't actually tell me that police target black people. And boy, was I wrong. And it was that moment where my anti-racist education started. So as a 34-year-old, I don't feel that way. But at 17... If I had had a one-hit wonder coming from coming from Delco, coming from outside of Philadelphia, where I was at that time, I would never have changed, and I'm glad that I did. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you telling that story and fleshing that out a little bit. Because yeah, like, no, I am not sitting here saying I was a, I was an active racist as a child, but like I didn't understand my privilege, which in turn showed itself as racism. And if there's one character in this book that doesn't understand their privilege, pardon it's me. Larry. It's Larry fucking Underwood. Yeah, 100%. He is such an asshole. Thanks for asking me to flesh that out, by the way. Yeah, no, no problem. Because I, I don't mind that being out there. I think it's important for us as white people, especially white men, cisgendered white men, to talk about 
the days where we were not anti-racist. Yeah, and I think that is important and because Larry is certainly not. He, and I don't think, at least up until right now, I don't think that piece of him, because it's ingrained from his mother. I mean, his mother's despicable. I, 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 I honestly... Though his mother, at <sighs> one point though, I will say this, pegged him perfectly. I know, she, I know. Well, because like, it's her son. You She are, knows him better than anybody. She calls him a taker and she says... It would be easier if you were just all bad, because then I could write you off. But you got a lot of good in you, but all you do, and essentially what she is saying is, Larry is a selfish man. Yeah. He is constantly just taking what he can. I mean, look at his actions. He's terrible. But at the same time, I will say, his mother perpetuates it a bit. When he comes home, she stocks the fridge. When he comes home, she does his laundry. She makes his bed because she knows he's not going to do it. So I'll do it for him. This is another part of Larry's privilege. I'm going to sit there and say one thing. You're about to be a dad soon. I know. I, As a parent, I kind of get like, my kid's home. I'm going to do things for of them. Course. Uh, look, my, my kid- mother. Dude, hold on. Hold on a second. My mother is, it, 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 minus the racism, is Larry's mother to a T told it how it is. will do anything for me up until this day. But like, I also didn't learn how to do fucking laundry by myself until I was 19. (laughs) You know what I mean? So like, there's a balance there. I think she's despicable. I'm not going to lie. Like her, the way her casual racism, the way that she tells him that he's a taker, like you're talking to your son. You're not telling your your boyfriend. You're not telling your husband. You're not telling a friend. I mean, I agree with her. He is a taker. I, so I'm going to challenge that a little bit. Oh, hit me. I'm going to challenge that. Hit so me. Larry disappears in the West Coast, never writes, never, which is another reference that didn't feel outdated. Like in the 90s, there was email. But anyway, never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got mail. There was AOL. Even old people had it. Look it up. It was true. <laughs> you know, and, sorry. So he goes to the West Coast. He ends up just ditching everyone from his past, including his mom. Never writes. Shows up. She knows he's in trouble. And just like, okay, so the first time I see my son in years is him just popping up here after he is all over the radio. Sure. And she's just like, I know the only reason he's here is because he's in trouble. She doesn't, and she says that. She doesn't even ask. And she's like, you know what? He came to the one place where someone couldn't turn him away. Of course. And I'm not saying she's going to turn him away. And, and so I don't... Yes, the the racism part and oh, she's cold, man. is really, really uncool. <sighs> man. But I get a sense that their dynamic is deeply dysfunctional after Larry's father passed away. Sure. She was a she was a single mom. And there's something that I've learned right now as a parent who's who has a functional, healthy relationship with a loving and amazing wife who's a fantastic mother. I can imagine what it's like to do that by yourself. Laurel and I are a team and that teamwork is what makes raising Arthur, our son bearable and fun and loving. It makes the dream work. It makes the dream work. (laughs) You chomping at the bit for that one. But for Larry, his mom had to do it on her own and 
I get the sense Larry never gave back and all he ever did was take from her. So at that point, when she's saying that he's a taker, she's really being like, I get it. I don't want to know your trouble. I know it's big. I know it's bad. And I know you're here for selfish reasons. And I know you know you're here for selfish reasons, which he knows as well. Like he's very transparent. And what does he do, Larry, that first night home when his mom's thinking, maybe we should go to a Yankee game. He goes out, he seduces a young woman, and then he runs out on her in another scene of casual domestic violence. And I'm like, and then he goes to his mom, bleeding with the love and booze stink of another woman on him, and tries to explain what's going on. And that's when she's just like, yeah, yeah, you know what, son? You're an asshole. Because guess what? He's an asshole. No, I completely agree. I think they're both assholes, but for different reasons. Trust me, what I completely agree with what you're saying, but I can see why Larry acts the way he does. I have a theory about Larry's and his mother's relationship, how dysfunctional it is. And in fact, in all of these characters, they're dysfunctional relationships and, and how nothing is working in their lives and how they're stuck and even if they have some success, things are not working out for them. The superflu renders all human drama irrelevant. It renders them all, at best, a comedy, and at worst, a tragedy of insignificance. It feels petty. And I think one of the reasons King spends so much time getting us into the lives of these characters is to highlight how silly human drama is compared to the larger, bigger, broader world. And for the listeners out there, I mean, I think that was the impetus for you and I to stop at 230 pages and and talk about this on the podcast was because it definitely feels, you know, I was under the assumption, assumption, excuse me, that we were going to read 1,200 pages of a superflu, right? And then we got to page 230 and the superflu has destroyed America, and for that matter, the rest of the world. And so now, uh, my whole thing, like, wow, well, we're going to watch the survivors pick up the pieces. And you had said something to me one day while we were just casually talking about it. You're like, yeah, the super flu makes their problems look petty. And I was like, oh, that's what it is. That's what, because I was reading the first 230 pages of the book thinking to myself, this is his best? Like, it doesn't feel, it feels like everybody's, it's just domestic violence and petty racism and and petty bullshit, and then everyone dies. And it's like, how do we pick up the pieces from that pettiness? Oh, are you going to be upset that there are people in town that might know your daughter has a baby out of redlock? Yeah, you're all dead. Right. That never mattered. Right. That never mattered. (laughs) Never at all. That was never important. No. You know, and and now the very people that you are... You're so upset, talking a little bit about Franny now, you're so upset what people might judge you that you will strike your pregnant daughter. You can't get over the death of your son. 99% of humanity is now gone. It, it brings into the question, you know, levels of trauma and what trauma really is and how people deal and react to trauma. And dude, you know what it makes me think too? In my own life, 
I had a tough day. Something bad happened. There's a misfortune that happened to me. 600,000 plus Americans are dying because of COVID. Millions are going to be dead across the world. There are countries that can't do anything to contain the, vi the virus whatsoever. I am fortunate enough to live in a country that's done some things. Arguably, we could be doing more, sure. Mm -hmm. But I have a vaccine in my, in my system, and I can walk out the door without fear of dying. Yeah. And it makes me think about... And that is not the America in this book. No. Not at all. But it does make me think about, and I do think the stoic lesson, I'm going to go back to that, amongst all of these characters. Franny is able to look at her pregnant situation. She's able to look at her dysfunctional relationship with her mother, her functional relationship with the father, which is still a little dysfunctional, and her not-so-good relationship with Jesse, her boyfriend. And she's able to look at it all and know what she's able to do. What is her defining characteristic? She giggles. She's able to giggle. It's hard for everyone but her. Even when it's sad, she's just like, you know what? I'm not going to drop out of school. I'll take a semester off. You know what? I don't love him. People are going to be weird and mad that I'm going to have this baby. But I think I want to have it. She is definitely, to me at this point in time, the strongest one. That's also very stoic, too. In the philosophical, not the... Right. Narrative sense. She, she feels, you know, Franny, I, I, for the crazy abuse that happens in her chapters, for the, for the amount of trauma that she has to navigate, the fact that that giggling is her defining quality and the fact that she can rise above that pettiness and that negativity is really inspiring. You know, we, 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 we comment all, a lot, you and I, and, and, and rightfully so, that King doesn't always hit the mark when it comes to the women that he writes. And most men don't because we don't understand a woman's experience. No matter how much we try, we will never understand, especially in the United States, what it's like to be a woman here. And we're currently seeing those rights of those women be violently attacked in this country. Right. And that, that also reminded me of, of her conversation. She wants to keep this baby despite everyone else around her, mostly men, telling her that's not the right decision. And Franny, to me, is, she just seems, you know, I want to use the word pure, but I don't mean it in its actual definition. She's not innocent to me. You, you don't mean it in the psychosexual. Exactly. Like she's like, oh, she's some virgin that we should put on no, a pedestal. She's just, she's got such a pure energy about her. Everything about her is real. It is, it is how she feels. She tells everyone around her how she's feeling. And even when those around her disagree, she goes, I, you know what? Honestly, I don't care. This is how I feel. And when she wrote the letter... To her friend. Mm. She was just like, you know, I can't unload all of this. That level of emotional intelligence, just being like, by the way, I'm going through some stuff and I could use you when you're free. Yeah. I thought that was like amazing. I mean, she's willing to forgive Jesse for slapping her. Oh, well, Jesse's a bum. She realizes I don't love him and I don't want him necessarily around the baby because I would neither. He slapped her. A fucking bum. But she doesn't call the police. She's very calm, very well, she collected. She handles it herself. 
Because and she can. She's, she's lived with a mother who's emotionally crippled after the death of her brother and a father who's emotionally unavailable to the mother after the death of his son, but like, her brother. But like completely emotionally available to Franny. Yes. Well, not completely, but mostly. Yeah, I mean, he is there for her. And, and she's able to deal with all of that. And she's able to deal with that still being able to laugh at how cosmically absurd certain things are. And I think that displays a level of strength plus a level of humility. I'm really excited. I am. I, this is just a prediction. I don't know if this is true. The fact that she is pregnant is hopefully a foreshadow that humanity will be able to continue that. Yeah. This is not the end of the human species. The fact that, Almost the whole country gets wiped out, presumably the rest of the world by reading yeah. the back. But one character is pregnant who is immune is telling me that like the people who are left can hopefully pass on immunity to the disease and that humanity can can sustain. In your respect, you call her pure. I'd say to me, there's a symbolism also of hope if this is a foreshadow. I mean, it's King, a monster could eat her baby in front of her, you know, like, and it, right. <laughs> you know, like that could true. happen. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I almost, I almost kind of kicked myself for using the word pure. Cause it's not what I mean. I, I, it's I got almost, your sentiment, but, and it's also like a raw energy of just like this, this truth that she carries around that she is not going to waver from. And she is not going to, you know, put that truth aside for anyone. Agreed. I mean, she really follows her gut instinct. She listens to herself. She trusts herself more than anyone in this novel yet, in she, my opinion. She was the most gunslinger. Oh, absolutely. Because the the characteristic of a gunslinger, at least emotionally, not in the like combative, like she knew how to beat people in a battle, but what makes a gunslinger in terms of a mentality is someone that is both equally parts intuitive and emotional and rational and they know that balance and they know where they are in that balance and they trust where they are in that balance it's a thing that roland is constantly being torn by his intellectual and romantic selves he wants to love but he is also ruthlessly like calculating and logical and he is always in that balance and when roland is his most ha most happy making his best decisions in the dark tower is when he's right in the middle and like Franny's right there in the middle. She can think clearly in stressful situations. She doesn't overreact. But at the same time, she feels her emotions and she is a romantic to her core. She's already head over heels in love with this baby. And I think that's really cool. Absolutely. I right, completely so agree. Let's talk character around Robin. Let's talk a little bit about Stu Redman. <gasps> Stu Redman. I think of the other characters, he doesn't get as much backstory at the very least. Like we learned a good bit about him, but not as much as Larry and all the others. Um, oh, we didn't talk about Lloyd. We talked about him a little bit. Let's talk about Stu. I want yeah. to talk about Stu. Yeah. What do you think of Stu? I love Stu. I think Stu is, again, we don't know very much about him up at this point. Feels like a straight shooter. We do know up until this point that they have injected him with Project Blue, with this virus, and it has not affected him at all. Um, I think 
I want to know more about Stu actively. I, I, I feel like he might be our, our truest Roland character. He feels the most like if there will be a quartet of these characters, which I imagine there probably will be, Stu feels like a, a leader, a natural born leader. Right now he's a loner. You know, he doesn't really understand what's going on, but he fights for himself. He has no idea up until this point that he's been injected with any of this. And really, he has no clue what's going on. So I think King, rightfully so, has put us in kind of a nebulous space with Stu. Like, we're sort of finding out what's happening through Stu when it comes to the virus and the testing and the ways that we're moving forward, you know, from the killing of everyone, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think Stu is an interesting parallel to Lloyd that they're both kind of in prison. Yeah. Stu, I think, is very rational. You know, one of highly the, rational. One of the things that we go to Dark Tower references that court criticizes Roland is that he's not able to do riddles well, which means he's not able to see around corners. He's far too far too linear, far too rational. Stu can see around the corners. Yeah. Like he ascertains when he has some semblance of power. And he uses it to get someone higher up from the government to talk to him. Yeah. He also understands where we're at right now. We're like, he's dispend dispensable now. He's like, I need to escape. They're going to end up killing me. And in fact, we learn not from his point of view chapters, but from the point of view chapters of the military that they did, in fact, as you said, injected him with the virus. Right. Trying to see if it would kill him so that they could learn something about it, which they haven't. I think Stu is also... Stephen King does like the average everyday man who can be extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. And that's a thing that exists in a lot of his stories. And Stu is this average everyday man yeah. who has something extraordinary. He's extraordinary in the respect that one, he um, is he's not going to succumb to the, vi he's the virus. And two, he's extraordinary in the respect that he can see things. But there's two clues to the future that I picked out here that connect Stu and Nick that may have something to do with their immunity. I don't know if you picked this up or not, and this may be completely hogwash. Those of you listening who've read the whole book might be like, yeah, Derek, you're grasping at straws. But Nick and Stu share one common trait. They're exceptionally vivid dreamers. We know this because they monitor Stu's dreaming. And one of the doctors says, the only thing we know about him is when he's stressed, he has an eyelid twitch, and he's an exceptionally vivid dreamer. And then Nick mentions in his own point of view chapter that he's always had extraordinarily vivid dreams. When I saw those two things, I'm like, I wonder if Franny and Larry also have vivid dreams. You know, I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> Not shocking. But that makes a lot of sense. It's mentioned twice about, and with two characters who are presumably immune, Lu Stu is definitely immune. Oh, without I question. I assume Nick is too. Well, yeah, I mean, Nick has been around multiple people who have died from the virus. And he is fine. So it's interesting that that got mentioned both times, like both have vivid dreams. Maybe there's something about the vivid dreams that, connects all of these characters could and be, maybe it connects the immunity. Could be Todash. Could be that they're, you know, they're slipping into that world, into that realm. Or a little bit of the touch. Yeah, 
Oh, oh. I, but there's something I, I no I think, that makes sense. I, think. I mean, now, look, he's not. We know King by this point doesn't just put random things in the book, right? If 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 it's connected, if it's mentioned more than once, it probably has something to do with a plot, something to do with connecting these characters. And I, I mean, the way that he, the way that he puts the chapters together, it absolutely feels like this group of people will converge. Um, I mean, I would almost assume that both Larry and Franny are, are most likely immune as well. They've also been around folks that have been sick. Although I don't know if Franny has at this point, but Larry has. So well, Fran, Fran's mother's dead. Right. And her, her father's sick. Right. So, yeah. So, I would assume that the, the two of them are also immune. And chapter 26 is like, America's dead. Dude, t- chapter... You know what? We didn't originally plan this, but can we just... Can we break that down just a little bit? That, that chapter, chapter 26? Yeah, because, yes. both, because both of us felt kind of the same way. Chapter 26 made me put the book down for a few days uh, before we even decided to record this. And I know you and I had had this conversation. And... In a time where, you know, we live in an America that's very volatile right now. It's experiencing its own pandemic. It experienced four years of a, not a true dictatorship, but someone who wanted to be a dictatorship. And, you know, I see a lot of parallel signs between this book and our reality. I just want to say very clearly, you are talking about Donald Trump, just so there's no misunderstanding. We're not talking about Barack Obama no. as the dictatorship. No, absolutely yeah. not. I yeah. voted for Barack twice, and I worked on his campaign. Absolutely I, not. I just want no misunderstanding. No, we are talking about Donald Trump. Yeah, 100%. No fear in saying that. It, 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 that this world, you know, it, reading The Stand, you know, just to give the listeners a little background, just a, 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 tang, a tangent for a second. I didn't really want to read this book yet. I didn't. The pandemic, you and I both got sick. Our wives both got sick. You know, we, 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 all four of us had COVID. And it has, even though we all got to live through COVID, it has had long-term consequences, both psychologically and at least for me in my health, I, I'm still recovering from yeah. the, the toll it took on my lungs. And for me personally, it ruined relationships of mine, really close relationships. I did not get to see my son get born. Yeah, that's the worst part. Like, hands down. No question. I will carry that with me till the day I die. And my wife had to be isolated from me. She was able to be with Arthur. So my wife had to be alone by herself in the hospital for 48 hours. It's horrifying. Nurses couldn't even come in and see her. And that was hard on her. And this pandemic is nowhere near as deadly as the one in this book. And so to read these pages and think about the people that we were surrounded with during the pandemic, the the place that we lived during the pandemic. I mean, look, we live in South Philly. There's absolutely no question that this neighborhood down to the granular part of this neighborhood is fucking divided. And for those of you who don't know, South Philly is the South Philadelphia. Oh yeah. yeah. Some might, some might know no, what no, South Philly is. <laughs> no, absolutely. We no, live in Philadelphia, we live Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. And, and we and, live in the South part of it. Yeah. The very South part of it. And the truth is, is, is we're like, really far from the Liberty bell. And I didn't want to read this book. 
I really, truly didn't. And when I read chapter 26, it made me think, you know, I always thought I understood what martial law was. And I remember having conversations, uh, uh, sort of radical conversations towards the end of Trump's presidency where I thought very seriously right before the insurrection that, you know, we might experience that in our lifetime. True martial law. I had no fucking clue. Because if this is what martial law is, and that chapter 26, for anyone that's read this book, you know what we're talking about. You mentioned it earlier. College students gunned down. Radio hosts gunned down for speaking the truth. Military veterans turning on each other. The President of the United States, sick as a dog, bold-faced lying to the American people. And did we not suffer through that for four years? I mean, nowhere near as bad. 99% of the population is not dead, but 600,000 Americans are. 600,000 plus and growing. <clears throat> right. And the president still got the disease in our reality, in our where and when, still got the disease by denying that it was real and going around and nearly died if it weren't for experimental treatments. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I didn't want to read the stand because of what we had gone through. And yet reading it, it's allowed me to step back and view that time in a very specific lens and realizing that it's a sympathetic response and not an empathetic response. At least we didn't go through the super flu. I, I love what you're saying here. I am definitely picking up what you're, what you're putting down. I had my trepidations about doing the stand, living through a pandemic, you and I both having contracted COVID and knowing that this was about a disease that killed millions of people. And I was also worried, like, am I ready? Am I prepared? There was also a part of me that was like, jump in and like, see if the water's warm. I'm yeah. doing Stephen King. This is the book yeah. that seems the right book for the wheel of Ka and my emotional damage and trauma be damned and just go ahead and rip the bandaid off and do it. And what I learned reading through these first 230 pages is that the pandemic, my trauma with it's not over. I cried when America ended in this book. It's not the first time Stephen King made me weep, and it wasn't the hardest I've wept reading Stephen King, but I, I cried because I know what a toll, we all know what a toll a virus can have on us as individuals and on us collectively as a, as a country. And there's no easy answers. Whatever problems you are having, whether those are individual problems with drug dealers you owe money to, um, local Proud Boys that want to beat you up. Uh, I said Proud Boys. I'm, I didn't mean Proud Boys, but whatever. We'll, we'll run with that. Uh, Same thing. An unwanted pregnancy on the local level, the small level, the individual level, versus the macro level, structural racism, inequality. Domestic abuse fake legitimate fake knowledge systems that could be called fake news, not in the Trumpian way, but literal institutions of knowledge that are doing everything in their power to pollute truth 
all of those get, and we know this, all of those are made worse by a pandemic. Whatever problems you're having, the pandemic makes it worse. And to see, and to not see, but to read America fall so swiftly in this, I wept, I wept for my country, even though this is not my where and when, this is another, this is a fictional America in the Stephen King multiverse. But I think you could envision this America. I wept. And that's what made you feel that. I wept for my country. Yeah, for sure. And I wept for those that have been so affected by this disease because it's affected all of us. Yeah. And I thought this book would be just the disease, as we you did. Yeah, we both did. And it turns out that this book was... Was not this. I presume this book will be the aftermath of the disease, but it was worthwhile to me both emotionally, both intellectually, creatively to pause and think what is Stephen King saying about mass disease? And what does that say about America? And it says that it will test us to our very brim, it will make our petty things seem small, and it, it, will, it will hurt. It will be pain beyond pain. And we have all lived through that. We're all still living through that. You're going to a funeral of a friend's mother who died from this this weekend. Like, this is hard stuff. Like, this is what we're all going through right now. And the stand spoke to me. These first 230 pages spoke to me in a way it really moved me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that was it, me hitting my drink on the table. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. By the way, Derek and I drink beer and some whiskey during this sometimes. And sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, um, I think one of the things that we both realized with this book was we were going to get real when it came to conversations about this, because we understood that, you know, we were going to read this book in a time where we were going through a global pandemic. And, and no matter the extent or the size of that pandemic, we can relate to people in this book, to being scared, to being afraid of the unknown, to being afraid of an incompetent government at the time handling such a, the magnitude of, of this pandemic and feeling like we had absolutely no support from above. Were they walking into radio stations and shooting people? No, thank goodness. But it felt like we could get there. And, you know, we, we know in the course of our life that a pandemic of this magnitude, even in the stand, is something that's possible. And, bro, things that are happening in this America are happening in places on this planet right in now. response to this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, societies are collapsing. Luckily, ours hasn't yet. Yet. We have one thing left to talk about oh yeah towerist i Come think on. you know we did a character round robin we bared our souls because he's in the first 230 pages and we just haven't gotten there yet you know what we <laughs> saved for the very last here randall fucking randall flag, flag. Ugh, the walking dude we've gotten one chapter it is very quick. It's very brief. But it is so telling. What did you think of it? So, 
it, I, it immediately reminded me of the tower. Like the Randall flag that we hear of, it reminded me of the man in black. Different, different clothing. You know, we go about how he's known in, as different names in different times and different places. And the thing that really hit me was, you know, I was waiting for the supernatural moment. You know, when, when the man in black shows up, something is shifting in the world. Something is changing. A beam is being broken on the level of the tower. Something is out of balance for him to be such a prominent figure. And, you know, you know, pun intended, but to be the main cog in the wheel of Ka. Right? Anytime that Randall Flagg shows up, no matter what it is, no matter who he shows up as, something is fundamentally wrong with that piece of the world. And it makes absolute sense that he is walking cross-country in the United States. And everywhere he goes, there's chaos. Everywhere. I love it. Let me give you a little quote that I highlighted about this chapter. There's a lot of Dark Tower references. We're probably not going to get to them all. We might have even missed some. But let me give you a quote. It's on page 183. He, being Randall, the man in black, or Randall, the dark man in this, he certainly could not remember much that had happened to him before that, his childhood, except that he came along from Nebraska and that he had once attended high school classes with a red-haired, bandy-legged boy named Charles Starkweather. So I paused and I'm like, who the heck is Charles Starkweather? Yeah. Charles Starkweather surely must be a Stephen King reference. Such a weird name from another Stephen King work that this, this, this must be. So I Googled it. Who is Charles Starkweather? His name is Charles Raymond Starkweather. And no, this is not another Stephen King reference. So he was born November 24th, 1938. He died June 25th, 1959. He was a serial killer. He murdered 11 people between in Nebraska and Wyoming between 1957 to 1958. He was 19 years old. Shut the fuck up. He killed 10 of his victims between January 21st and January 29th. And that was when he was arrested. During his killing spree, he was accompanied by his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. He was a real dude. He was a mass murderer. So Randall Flagg's first memory is of this person who goes on on an actual killing spree and becomes a serial killer. One who which I never heard of. So that floored me a little bit. Steve, you look floored. I'm just like, Derek does this every single episode. Something happens where he, he finds some little piece of information. This is just for the listeners, by the way. I'm talking about him like he's not right next to me. He finds this piece of information and like brilliantly explains it, makes all of this connection. And I just sit here like, did I read the first 230 pages? Am I actively a part of the Wheel of Ka? That is insane. And makes complete and total sense. I mean, serial killers in the United States are synonymous. Especially at this time, in the 70s. So Randall Flagg 
his first real memory is it's vague of this person who goes on to become a notorious serial killer. And what does this, this walking man do? He goes from place to place and he nudges chaos yep. and he makes things just a little worse. And he enjoys it. Oh, you're part of the radical uh, social liberation. Go attack and kill those cops. Oh, you're part of the KKK. Go ahead and lynch this African-American. Oh, wherever you are. And he was an equal opportunist oh, when it comes yeah. to causes. Oh, yeah. He's just collecting pamphlets and making emotional people, people energized worst. And he doesn't really remember his childhood. It's as if he was called into existence itself. It was if he was not born, but made. And I was blown away by that. So my last thing I just want to read here is this is where we know that this character is symbolically, if not literally connected to the Randall flag of, or the flag of eyes of the dragon, Walter O'Dim and Martin is in this quote, quote, it was almost time to reborn. He knew why else could he suddenly do magic? He closed his eyes, his hot face turning up slightly to the dark sky, which was prepared to receive the dawn. He concentrated, smiled. The dusty, run-down heels of his boots began to rise off the road. An inch, two, three inches. The smile broadened into a grin. Now he was a foot up, and two feet off the ground, he hung steadily over the road with a little dust blowing beneath him. Then he felt the first inches of dawn stain the sky, and he lowered himself down again. The time was not yet, but the time was soon. He began to walk again, grinning, now looking for a place to lay up for the day. The time was soon, and that was enough to know for now. And I like that he, he operates only at night. He is the opposite of the day. He is the opposite of the white light of the day. He's the opposite of the white. He is a force that is existing in this world. Maybe this is the origin story of the character that goes to Midworld. Maybe this is another reincarnation of that same Walter or that same Martin or that same flag from Eyes of the Dragon. Maybe they're literally the same. Maybe they're symbolically the same. One thing I could say, certainly they are symbolically the same. And here is a character at the end of the world who can levitate himself three inches, who's already done inexorable harm to everyone before he had magic. It is, uh, for all our listeners out there, it is Tuesdays, or th excuse me, Thursday, September 9th at 9.38 p.m., and Steve has officially quit the Wheel of Ka because there's no longer need for any of my analysis. Dude, are you kidding me? Oh, come on. You just blew... I didn't think about any of that when I read it. The fact that you were like, let me look up this name, found out it was a serial, kill serial killer, completely picked up... Well, I did pick up on the night versus day. I'm not that... I'm yeah. like, you know, come on. That makes sense. But like, dude, you are you serious? That blew my mind. 
I never thought about it that way because I was just so excited that Randall Flagg showed up and oh my God, emotional Steve was like, holy shit, he has his powers. What's going to happen? You were like, you know what? Actually, there's a name in here I should look up because that makes sense. And I assumed it would be another, it would be another connection to the tower. R.I.P. Steve at the Wheel of God. <laughs> <laughs> Please, you are 50% but of this. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I would assume the same thing. I mean, now hearing it, it if I would have, you know, been in the right state of mind to pick up on that, I probably would have looked at it as well. I do agree with you that every time I see a name in a Stephen King novel that that I that either like is familiar or is not directly connected to the story, I'm like, all right, where are they from? What book are they from? You know, where do they come from? And that's what I was thinking too. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's a serial killer. His first memory is his redheaded friend who he turns into a serial killer. That's brilliant, bro. Yeah. Good, good pickup. I thought this one of the moments where, where I was floundering with like, oh God, this guy Larry is such a jerk because he's way too much like young Derek. And yeah. I don't like reading about what an asshole I was, <laughs> you know? And then this Randall Flag chapter happens. And that's when I'm like, this is going to get so cool. Well, and, and, you know, for me, when Randall Flagg shows up, it's like, this is going to get so much worse. It's going to get a whole yes. lot worse. Let me caveat that. That Before cool, meaning like, this narrative is going to be more engaging. I'm not happy that Flagg is there because it, nothing good happens. Exactly. And I, but I will say that, like, we, we meet Randall Flagg a good, like, five or six chapters before Rome falls, before America dies. And so I almost forget about him because we're reading essentially his hand in, in the game. Absolutely. You know, um, we are well over our normal time. So I think we should do final thoughts and then wrap it. Great. Final thoughts. I'm really excited to see where the story goes. I really am. I, I, I think the most excited I've been so far is it because I had a giant fear of clowns to get over. But this, the stand is, is really living up to everybody's hype. It is. Um, it is a really unique introduction to a book. There's a lot of book left. It's not at all what I thought. I am really excited to see what Flag is going to do in a world where no one can stop flag. And I, I think we can safely say that this might, well, this will most likely be our, our, our first multi-part, you know, series on this book. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. We're going to, here's how it's going to work going forward. Fellow travelers on the, on the path of the beam, we're going to read and then we're going to stop when we think it's time to do an episode. Yeah. We're, we're not going to be like, we're going to read 50% and then do an episode we stopped really early in this because we felt like we had a lot to say mm -hmm. about the first 230 pages. So we're going to dive back into it. And when we're ready to do the next episode, it may be we'll read the next whole book. I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. But we're going to get to a point where we want to do the next episode. Then we'll do it. So follow us on Twitter. That's where you'll be able to see yeah. what we're doing and when we're doing we're it. Pick up your copy of The Stand if you're not rereading we're only 230 pages in. Catch up. Read it with us. And long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. <laughs> <laughs>